0: Classical Christian educators aren't just interested in the old stuff for nostalgia's sake or to hide from the crazy modern world, although that may be tempting at times. We hold on to the great writers and thinkers going all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans because throughout generations, these writers and thinkers have stood the test of time and point to the things that are true and lasting and permanent. Obviously, Scripture is part of that too. But it is interesting that great thinkers like Plutarch back in the first century wrote biographies retelling the great stories of the Romans and the Greeks because they became so much a part of their culture and throughout human history, great leaders from Beethoven to Harry Truman have been significantly impacted from reading Plutarch. We live in a world of the temporary and the disposable and the flippant, and so many are desperate for depth and substance. Join us for this episode where we are reminded again of why we believe the ancients have so much to offer to us frazzled moderns on the run.
1: Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it ancient future education for raising the next generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens.
0: Well, welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. Always begin each episode by saying genuinely grateful that you've taken time to listen and to reach out to me. It is amazing the rise of classical Christian education uh, as people are looking for alternatives to education. It's, it's only adding to the intensity and the interest in our schools, and there are folks all over the world I know that listen to Base Camp. Some of you are in international locations in the mission field starting classical Christian schools. Others of you are here in the U.S. Maybe this is your first year starting a classical Christian school, or maybe it's uh, your third decade in the classroom, as it may be. Love to know where you are, what's on your mind, and how it's going, and we certainly want to be mindful to be praying for you and encouraging you. And I'm hopeful that as you spend time here at Base Camp, it is a way for you to leave encouraged and further aware of the important work that we're doing. Each episode kind of takes a different topic. This one um, with Alex Petkus is going to be uh, amazing as we unpack the idea of, of how the great books really continue to speak to us today. But before we get into that, I do want to say thanks, as always, to those who sponsor and come alongside us, Classical Academic Press Chris Perrin and your team. Thank you for all that you do for the movement. If you've not uh, ventured over to Classical Academic Press, they have great resources for the classroom, for the home. They have training material. They have podcasts. They have all kinds of great uh, ways of helping you on the journey. So thanks, Chris and the the team at Classical Academic Press. Alex uh, Petkus is a fellow podcaster, which is always fun to talk to someone who is no stranger to the microphone he has a fascinating journey he's a former academic he holds a doctorate in classics from Princeton University that's pretty significant and he's taught at the University of California San, uh, San in San Diego and Cal State Fresno but then he ended up deciding to to leave and to jump into private industry. And so by day, he works in the industrial coatings industry where he oversees technical services and marketing at a small chemical manufacturing company. I think it's awesome to have folks that are wearing both hats. So came down out of the ivory tower, they're working in a chemical manufacturing company, and yet more passionate than ever that the classics have everything to do with what our culture needs today, especially as we find more and more uh, just kind of bleary eyed folks that are desperate for depth um, in an age of the superficial, which of course is just what our culture celebrates left and right. Um, Alex is, a, is uh, his podcast is called The Cost of Glory, and he dramatically retells Plutarch's lives, as he says, for regular people, keeping true to Plutarch's spirit um, of personal development and practical wisdom. And as you go hear more Plutarch, Plutarch was himself writing biographies to help, even in the first century, folks uh, discover the importance of the great writers and great thinkers um, that are, make up very much uh, the core of classical Christian education. So without further ado, let me encourage you to uh, listen attentively as we have this conversation together with Alex Petkus. Well, Alex Petkus, welcome to Basecamp Live. Good to have you on.
2: Thanks, Davy's great to be here.
0: Yeah, so so good to have a fellow podcaster um, joining me today. So you know you know the ropes of this uh, digital world.
2: Yeah, and I love the work that you've done, and uh, it's, it's great to um, be here with you because I've I've learned so much from listening to your guests, and uh, love what you're doing. Well, so I great I, to appreci-
0: be I appreciate that. You know, you you're in a I love I love the position you're in. I always see myself kind of as a translator between the the deep world of classical Christian and the. You know, you say kind of the, from a parent's standpoint, minivan, Mary and soccer dad, Sam driving around, got their kids mm-hmm. in the uniform going, what are they doing to my kids at this classical school? Or the new teacher who's showing up saying, I love classical Christian, but I am still trying to figure this thing out. So you have one foot firmly planted in the academic world, amazing pedigree. I mean, you you can you can keep up with the, all the guys in the bow ties and, and say all the right things <laughs> at the at the academy, but you're also uh, kind of day job, you're, you're firmly gra- grounded in sort of the daily real world of industrial coatings. Explain a little bit about your two worlds. I want to hear a little bit more. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, I, two years ago I decided I, um, I had to leave academia for a variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I, the place that I landed was this, uh, family firm that I kind of grew up around. My dad founded it. And, um, we're just a small business in the industrial coatings world. And we make a, some niche products for the market. And so, you know, um, During the the week, I might be going to a a trade show explaining how how rust forms on bare steel to people who are, um, you know, painting pipeline projects or oil rigs, and um, I might be interfacing with customers, I have to do accounting, marketing, sales, capital allocation, all that stuff. Um, And then, you know, early mornings and nights, I try to work on my podcast in the, in the, and decide i started the podcast about about a year ago once i once i kind of realized what my routine would be um you know i realized i had time to start a side project and this is something that i was kind of passionate about so yeah i try to keep a foot in both worlds and sometimes they go extreme in one one direction or the other but uh, it's a lot of fun and i like it that way
0: i love that well and i mean you're talking about i mean you couldn't get any more kind of literally boots on the ground uh, analyzing rust i mean this is this is about as um you know, practical as it gets, if you will. So, um, and you know, one of your one of your overarching kind of observations, and we're going to talk a lot about Plutarch and just sort of the the ancients. I, I mean, I certainly know for many of our listeners, there is at least a cursory appreciation of the fact that classical Christian schools augur in deep to Romans and Greeks. And you know, we've talked about this on various other podcasts, but you have this very, um, you know, you are compelled to really say. In this world in which we're living today, which is filled with the superficial, the disposable, there is a, there's this depth, uh, a hunger for a depth, for substance, and I think so often we walk right past this this answer that for centuries was the source of of hope and inspiration, of depth and substance, and just guidance for life. And so, talk a little bit about you know this passion you have to to bring alive the ancients is really the antidote to this modern problem.
2: Yeah. So when I was um Thinking that I was leaving academia, I uh, happened to be reading some of Plutarch's Lives for like a class I was teaching, and and um, and and but n- since I knew that I was going to do something quite practical and you um, know real world, I started reading the Lives with different with different eyes, and kind of as um, we always talk about in, in academia, like how oh this this could be useful in life if you end up doing something practical and. And so I started just kind of taking my own medicine. And um I I started getting really into Plutarch's lives because I knew I had this vague inkling that this is a text, a set of texts that that, you know, ambitious, hardworking, very much in the world people have turned to throughout the centuries. Um, you know, uh one of the great examples is Harry Truman. Um he talked about, I mean, his dad bought a copy of Plutarch's lives and would read it to him when he was a kid. And uh, he turned to it again and again throughout his life. It was one of his favorite texts. And he explained to an interviewer late in his life that, uh, you know, whenever he would face a problem dealing with um, some difficult character in in the political game, he would turn to Plutarch and he would, he would find, um, he would kind of use it as a library of human character to understand people. And, um, and the, you know, there's many other things that you can get from Plutarch, um, and I. So I was kind of aware of this tradition, and I and I wanted to. Um, I felt like it was almost accessible to people today, but I wanted to make it just a little bit more accessible yeah. to people because I saw so much value in it personally. It was really kind of lighting me up.
0: Well, I think that's. I want to, you know, just make it's obvious that we're in a world today that's not been the way it's been up until hundred years ago, and it, and I think the assumption day is it's it's the. It's the smarty people that kind of do all this Greek and Roman stuff. And not that Harry Truman wasn't a smarty guy, but, you know, I think about the mention before I've got a copy of national geographic 1927 and on the back cover is an ad full page ad for the, the, I think the quote is the, the books that charmed you in your youth. And so, and they and the great books are on there and, you know, and Plutarch would be listed in there. And so this is, this wasn't accessible. It was normal. It was quote everyday reading for so much of humanity <laughs> up until whenever you want to draw the line 75 50 years ago and and yeah. so you you know we're going to unpack sort of examples of that but um this is this was normative and so having said that back us up one up because i think again let's not assume anything plutarch uh, f- that name may be familiar to people like who w- who was he when did he fit into history why do you look to him as this guide as you've described him
2: yeah so like plutarch is um, a biographer from the Roman Empire. Uh, he was a Greek, though, when the Romans took over the Greeks. Um, you know, that's kind of the period that he comes from. And he was also a philosopher. Um, and in fact, more of the writings that we have of his are moral philosophy, just kind of encouraging people how to live a good life and be happy and deal with their problems. Uh, but he saw biography as um, the way, as like a kind of a unique tool for um, for transmitting virtue and inspiring people and kind of giving them what they actually could use to live a better life. Um, and it's important to theorize about ethics, but, you know, as Aristotle points out, like the, like character is, um, is a supervenient, well, it's, is basically demonstrated through actions. Like you can't really see character you can see people's actions and you, you you understand character from actions. you have to see actions in time, in a story. And so Plutarch, kind of building on this tradition, writes these biographies of these great Greeks and Romans and he writes parallel lives. so he, he compares a, a great Greek with a great great Roman um, and and just kind of like plays them off each other in you know mentally and trying to understand what made these guys tick and how do they get over their problems, what what mistakes did they make? And he's just an incredible storyteller, and the way that he does it is both morally serious, but just Hollywood entertainment wow. quality. And for that reason, he was, um, for some two hundred and fifty years, he was the number two best-selling book in the American <laughs> colonies after the Bible. Is that right? Fantastically popular, yeah. In the um, in the 17th, 18th centuries, he kind of goes out of fashion mid 19th century for a variety of reasons. But he's just, you know, Hutt so Huttark he, so the he was
0: like the lead series on the Netflix of the day as far as the serial uh, yeah. movies. Around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody just, was like, have you have you heard the new one that's out? So yeah, yeah. so just he's again, to kind of put him in context, he's he's living uh, first century A.D., basically. That's right, yeah,
2: first, second century AD, contemporary of, you know, Seneca and And, some of these
0: And so, you know, Jesus was around 100 years before, and now he's on the scene. Obviously, we've talked a lot about, I mean, the Greeks, part of the reason we were always enamored with him is because the Greeks probably did the best job at that point in history of framing up what does it mean to live the good life, what Mm -hmm. are the right questions we should be asking. Obviously, they didn't always get the answers right. Jesus had the best answers for those questions, but... Uh, how did he? There, you know, joke a bit about Netflix. I mean, what was the distribution for him? I mean, he's he's taking. So, if I understand this, he's he's effectively he's a scholar who's saying the average person out there needs to to be formed by better heroes, by you know, tragedies and triumphs, and and just the ebbing and flowing of life and and modeling. So, how did he do that? Did he take a complicated original source material and kind of break it down into a cliff note if i can say i mean what did it what did it really look like
2: yeah this is something that he um he talks about in his biography of alexander the great um he says i'm not writing histories i'm writing lives so please excuse me if i don't go over every single detail of every great battle because character is often revealed in you know an offhanded jest or some small action as much as in, in a great battle. So, so they're really, you know, he had this huge tradition of ancient historians. Many of them are quite long and quite boring and some of them are quite fantastic, but, Mm. um, but he, he condensed them down. And so the biography of Alexander the great, which is one of the, really one of the much, the great long ones is like 80 pages, maybe in, um, in modern editions, whereas you could go read Arian or Curtius Rufus and it's like hundreds of pages. And, and so he wanted to give people like a, Kind of bite size account of the life, and and not to tell all the the background and all the political context, but to just just to give you enough so that you can understand what was at stake for these people, yeah. and to reveal character through action.
0: Well, we're going to talk in in after the break. You know, we're going to get into some living examples of it. I mean, your opinion on this, because I wonder sometimes. With our classical Christian schools, because we're, you know, check the box, we're doing the great books, but how do we do them in terms of how do we bring them alive in the classroom? Do you think perhaps there's, you know, a risk, um, and to what extent are we, you know, maybe over-intellectualizing these writings and leaving students really kind of hungry for more, or, even, or maybe honestly just kind of bored with it? It's, it's you know, too much uh, theory and not enough, you know, practical. It sounds like Plutarch's like, no, let me show you how to live a life well, and let's unpack this
2: yeah and and um I, he really does and that was you know he's was, he was a very wise in, in human psychology and there's um uh, emerson um the great american essayist was a huge admirer of plutarch and he has a whole essay on plutarch and he mm. talks about how plutarch um okay thucydides is this very hard historian very serious historian in, um from the classical period of greece and, and he says well for every reader of Thucydides. There are a hundred readers of Plutarch and mm. many of those ones that, that Thucydides has, he owes to Plutarch. So Plutarch is kind of a way that you can get into the ancient world without going, you know, it, it, it's it's a great taster. And um, in the sense of like, you know, it's it's easily approachable from a historical standpoint. And from a philosophical standpoint, he's not, I mean, he does have texts. He knows the kind of theory behind the morals that he's dealing with he's read all those books and he'll you know he has these moral essays but really you know it, he wants you to um to be affected by these stories of you know virtue and vice courage um restraint justice see them in action in a way that you know people people have been telling stories for you know depending on how you count you know, <laughs> thousands of years sure for sure right um uh around the campfire and Mm -hmm. oral tradition narratives are the way that morals really get passed down by, you know, by seeing people acting in, in the context of, of a narrative. And that's like, that's like, it's something, there's something really deep about how humans relate to each other. It's, it's, it's really about entertaining people first and then kind of almost subliminally, you don't even have to point out the moral of the story necessarily. People will get it. I think that You'd and that's
0: that. and I think that's a really important <clears throat> point that we sometimes perhaps as classical Christian educators overemphasize the historical information, you know, or or the form of the writing and miss just this is a living story that and we are a people of the story and Bibles of the story and just just making sure we don't Absolutely. miss that. And then we find ourselves in the story. I mean, I, I you know, be an interesting you've probably explored this in some of your podcasts, but just if you look, you know, there's nothing newer to the sun. So even most modern films today, if you really deconstruct them, really go back to these stories that are probably captured in the ancients over and over.
2: Yeah, totally. And, uh, stories of heroes and, um, and, you know, even Plutarch's villains, you know, we like, we tend to like villains, but even the kind of villains, they, they have to be likable, um, for them to be relatable. And, 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 um, and so he kind of makes even the villains relatable, but, um, yeah, there's, um, uh, Shakespeare, drew on Plutarch's lives when he wrote his Julius Caesar, um, his Coriolanus, uh, and uh, his Anthony and Cleopatra. So there's stories that have been recycled over and over again. It kind of, you know, in one way or another, a lot of Plutarch has made his way into popular culture yeah, through
0: yeah. the centuries. So, I mean, again, as the antidote to a culture of superficiality, if we if we present these ancients well, they should fill that void pretty quickly because all of a sudden we're finding that's a person I want to emulate. I mean, we just, I just don't think the average, you know, 15 year old, 18 year old sort of thinks, you know, I want to be like, you know, Marcus Aurelius. I mean, I, maybe sandals and robes aside, like what did he, what, why would help me see him in a modern world with his smartphone running around? Like, how would he deal with life today? I think that's the, we're hungry for someone to be our guide in that process. And, and yet he can speak to us today.
2: Yeah. And I think that one of the challenges with Marcus Aurelius, although, you know, I think you, you know, I mean, I you can get it pretty quickly. But yeah. 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 <laughs> but, you know, as we, we don't really, you know, we don't have a, like, he's not set in a narrative. You, you read the meditations, it's it's just him talking to himself. Right. But, but, you know, I think once you lay out a scene for people, for for your students, maybe for your kids, you know, it, it doesn't take much if once, if you, if you can kind of like, conjure up the drama of you know a great war a great conflict yeah um and seeing how people deal with situations that are kind of perennial you know like most of most of the most challenging things that we have to do in life are are human problems facing yeah. dealing with other people and that's something that goes back to time immemorial yeah and stories can help us deal with that
0: yeah well, why don't we take a quick break i want to come back i know you've you've uncovered a really interesting historical moment when beethoven apparently was on the brink of suicide who knew um but in reading plutarch it, it kind of walked him back that's fascinating i've never heard that before i want to hear more of that story again talk about practical application to a broken real world um, plutarch did that in illuminating these great ancients for beethoven so let's we're gonna hear more we'll be right back after the break It's time for another quick Classical Christian Q&A with Dr. Tim Dernland. So Tim, the question today is, why is cursive taught? I mean, come on, the people are learning, you know, you've got devices now you can speak into and they just listen to your voice, you can type your way through life, but we Classical Christian people love this old
1: cursive thing. Are we just kind of doing the throwback thing or is there actually a legitimate reason for it? There's a great legitimate reason. We're not just doing throwback to... For uh, for the sake of doing something uh, older, multiple studies have shown that cursive writing increases levels of learning and cognitive abilities by training the brain to integrate visual, tactile, and fine motor skills uh, all simultaneously. That's one of the things Davies that I love about classical Christian education is that it's so thoughtful and intentional. A lot of times, that's the first way that I explain classical christian education as just intentional christian education and so cursive actually um, unites the right and left side of the brain the hemispheres and and um, it's really good for dyslexic children and other children with learning disabilities to help them uh, learn more and um, cursive handwriting in in uh, not only brings the brain together but it, it also um, helps, the students to read original documents. So we've taken our students to, to some museums where um, some documents, uh, like maybe the the Declaration of Independence was written in cursive and our second graders just started reading it. And And the tour guides are, are really um, excited and impressed. So that goes back along with Ad Fontes that we talked about a few episodes ago with going to the original sources. Reading cursive, you can actually read the original sources. So for all the practical reasons, connecting hemispheres of the brain, um, helping with uh, fine motor skills, and just so many beautiful Mm. things. It's really, really, really intentional and important. And um, I'm glad that classical Christian schools make the effort to do that. Yeah, I've heard that before when young children are trying to differentiate
0: like between a B and a D. You can say it, they even sound alike, but when you write it out in cursive, it really helps differentiate that so you learn faster. So that's probably one of many examples like that. And, that's uh, a great point point. and then so on
1: yeah go ahead i was just gonna say i served at a school uh, at one point where we were having them write in in kindergarten cursive and starting with salt trays and finger tracing and sky writing and it's it's um it's it's really neat how quickly the students can pick it up yep so another example of what seems to
0: be kind of an old-fashioned thing that's actually the best thing for the modern world so thanks for reminding mm-hmm. us of this important part of what we do in classical christian schools thanks dr tim Thanks, Davies. Check out Dr. Dernland's book on 100 questions on classical Christian education. Got a question for him to answer on Basecamp Live? Send the question to info at Basecamp Live or leave us a message by voice or text on the Basecamp hotline, 833-595-2929. That's 833-595-2929. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Base Camp. Uh, Alex Peck is here with us. Alex, we took right for the break. We we're talking about Beethoven. Who knew that he was so desperate in his life on the brink of suicide that uh, upon reading Plutarch, he sort of found a renewed life. Ta- what, what was that all about?
2: Yeah. So when Beethoven is 30 years old, uh, you know, deep into his career, he starts to notice in his conversations that he's having kind of trouble hearing people with deep voices. He's kind of straining to hear the deep voices. And you know there's long intervals where he can hear sounds, but he's just not sure what's being said. And then he starts noticing more disturbingly. He goes to the concerts and he can't hear the high notes. He's realizing it's kind of starts on the extremes and it's kind of the, the range is closing and closing of his hearing and he realizes at last he talks to the doctor. This is it's permanent, he's going deaf. And gosh, he's like this wow. you know, aspiring composer. And, you know, his art is his life, right? And so in the pit of his despair, he turns to uh, one of his favorite authors from antiquity. Actually, we know that Beethoven references Plutarch's lives, in many of his writings and his letters. And he writes to a friend in 1801. He says, how often have I cursed my existence, but Plutarch led me to resignation I will strive so far as possible to defy fate even though there will be moments in my life where I will be the most unhappy of all God's creatures. <laughs> and and so, you know, Beethoven turns to there's so many examples in Plutarch of people just facing incredible odds and surmounting them. Sometimes they succumb to them, but they 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 fight with their with their all. And so Beethoven uses these examples of you know, statesmen and generals and he's a composer, right? Like he's, but he's got to summon something that, that they had to, to get him through because he thinks about contemplating suicide at that moment.
0: Do you, do you um, know in particular, was there a, a story that, I mean, again, Plutarch's just curating these great writings. I mean, was there one story in particular or were there several or what, what were the rubber met the road for Beethoven? What was that story?
2: Do you know, you know, we don't know exactly which story he's talking about. I I referenced this in my uh, in the first biography episode I, du- I did, which is the life of Sertorius. Um, and I, I think Sertorius might be a good example. Maybe the life of Eumenes, men who just face incredible odds. And Sertorius is the greatest Roman rebel. And he uh, he lo- he ends up on the losing side of a civil war. Um, this is the first Roman civil war and uh, the other guy that he's sort of fighting against is this general Sulla. And he ends up retreating um, with, so he's, he's fighting kind of the, the populist side of the Civil War versus the aristocratic side of the Civil War. There's a kind of class warfare going on, you might say. And he, he retreats with some of his supporters to Spain in, uh, in 82 BC, and they end up fighting and holding out against general after general sent to destroy them for 10 years. And he sets up a rival state in Spain and he sets up a rival Senate and he elects consuls and praetors and quaestors, mm-hmm. and just like has this whole parallel Roman state going on. And Sertorius really is just like a nobody until until the Civil War, when when people realize this is maybe one of the greatest generals we've ever had, mm-hmm. and we've just made him our worst enemy um, in this Civil War, and it's it's a tragic story, but it's also a story of this the incredible cleverness of this man and his determination, and he came just within a hair's breadth of of winning the war um, versus the you know the the assembled yeah. aristocracy of Rome. So that's I, I think that's a great example of just defying fate. Mm-hmm. That that Beethoven might have drawn on.
0: That's fascinating. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, if we, it'd be interesting. You mentioned Harry Truman earlier, just to go back through, you know, many of the influencers throughout our Western history, and 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 back, you know, reverse engineer back, were they sort of motivated out of a story that, you know, again, I'm not setting aside. People are listening. Well, the Bible's filled with great stories, and we're going to, yes, right. But I mean, there are also stories of great humans. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're made for heroes. We need heroes in our lives. We need someone to emulate. And I think that's, again, the tragedy of the modern moment we're in is our heroes are pretty flimsy, TikToky kind of people, and they're not exactly people of substance that we want to be.
2: Yeah, that's true. And, and, um, I mean, so like, yeah, Harry Truman is a great example of, of somebody turning to heroes from the past. And Harry Truman, the last U.S. president who didn't go to college. So he's a totally self-educated wow. man. And Plutarch, that's one of the reasons why he kind of went for the great books. He knew he had to find the good stuff, didn't have a lot of time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, somebody like Alexander Hamilton is another self-made person um, who 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 was in incredibly inspired by plutarch's lives in his youth and he uh, ron churnow talks about this in his biography of hamilton how he he sort of saw the world in terms of like heroes and great stakes which really <laughs> he was really living in times of great heroes and great stakes wasn't he the founding of the um, american republic and um and so he you know he drew on plutarch for inspiration for kind of like you know um how can i think big and how can i look at examples of statesmen, there's a lot of lawgivers and founders of states and cities and constitutions in Plutarch. So he's also kind of going through them as a practical guide on how we can arrange power within the state. And what are the what are the risks? How could it go wrong? So many stories of things going wrong in Plutarch and, you know, civil wars uh, erupting. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot there for for practical people again so i want
0: <clears throat> we're going to get into you know more because these these actual like okay I, i'm convinced now give me the stories i'm curious i mean i we'll, yeah. we'll do a couple more of these in a second but just to make an op, another op, point of observation i mean clearly again the gospels jesus this is you know the new testament is not filled with just propositional truth statements and value statements or virtue statements or they're, they're they're parables i mean we all know that because that's what moves us it's what motivates us and i was saying over the break when i was at Duke Divinity School years ago, you know, I took a New Testament class, and of course, it was this very, um, very, you know, intellectual and, and, and liberal view of like higher criticism. I mean, you get done with their sort of deconstructing of the Bible, and it's like this is sawdust. It's n- there's nothing beautiful about this. I'm not drawn to any of these stories necessarily the way it's been presented. And I wonder, again, just an opinion here, and not that you've, you're fully aware of all classical Christian curriculum out there, but I wonder if, you know, for educators listening, I mean, it, are we sometimes setting ourselves up to make this difficult to inspire students because the curriculum itself takes kind of this sawdust approach to these great, these great writers and leaves, leaves aside the rich story, which is really what's going to motivate. Is that a, is that a fair critique? Do you see that when you look at curriculum?
2: I certainly saw it in academia and, uh, you know, um, I, I think that the early Christians, were really wise and i actually i got into classics because i wanted to understand the early christians you know i was trying to understand the origins of christianity and how how they built a culture and one of the things that they turned to was this greco-roman tradition of biography really the lives the the gospels are based on this genre and they're earlier than plutarch and you know biographies happened before plutarch but even though he was the best but but you know they're they're seeing like here like if you have a just like a an earth shaking message to convey what's the best way to convey it Mm. a a story about an earth shaking person, you know, and that's what the gospels are. And, um, and, and, and the the ancient Greeks have a theory of um, have this really developed theory of like the way that, that values are transmitted, the way that art, like great artists come about the way that great, Men and women are formed is really through imitation. Mm. Mimesis is this term that, that they think a lot about. And um, and and they their kind of discovery, one of their great discoveries that I think, you know, in a way we're we're indebted to as Christians is that 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 you could contain a life of a person in a text mm. that was not really obvious to to many cultures and civilizations. I think the 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 Israeli, the Israelites got it. The, uh, the Jews got it, but not everybody got it that you could write this down and it would have the same effect. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of power in stories and, and, you know, Jesus tells parables, like he sets the example himself. Um, and the early Christians prev- um, preserve a lot of stories of, you know, great saints, great martyrs, St. Ignatius, yeah. Perpetua and Felicity. And they're kind of drawing on this Greco-Roman tradition of biography, and um, it, it just you know you you got to have people's attention before you can mm-hmm. really yeah. give them a an edifying <laughs>
0: message, right? I, I'm imagining as you're talking. I, said, I mean, that maybe that's another opportunity for you at some point to write, you know, reframe the cur- curriculum for us around you know, the, you know, the best best uh, best stories and and best. Um, and it really values are, or good values is such a wrong word. It's really the virtues that we're pursuing, the wisdom we're pursuing, but just, you know, what are those things that we aspire to, especially as classical Christian schools, and then who are the right people and encapsulate the story that we can latch onto? Okay. So that makes sense. And that's where, again, I think we as educators need to probably do a better job sometimes of just making sure that that story didn't get lost in the, in the deconstruction, if you will, of the, of the historical period. I know parents want that, um, to see that practical outworking that, that changes lives. So um, yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah. And if you have a point to make, you know, illustrated by a story. So like, if you want to talk about the power of poetry, here's a story. I'll, I'll just read yeah. you a little, a little passage, if that's all right. Absolutely. So this is from Plutarch's life of Lysander um, that I just did on my podcast and I retold. So Lysander is the Spartan, who defeated the Athenians in what Thucydides calls the greatest war the Greeks ever fought. Um, and the, the Athenians have just lost. And uh, so they're, the allies, the Spartans and their allies, they're trying to figure out, you know, what should we do with the Athenians now that we've beaten them? They're at our mercy. And uh, they're at a great assembly at Sparta to decide the fate of the Athenians. And, and here's the quote. And some say that in very truth, a proposition to sell the Athenians into slavery was actually made in the assembly of the Allies, and that at this time, Arianthus the Theban also made a motion that the city be razed to the ground and the country around it be left for sheep to graze. Hmm. Afterwards, however, when the leaders were gathered at a banquet, at a certain Phocian sang the first chorus of the Electra of Euripides, the tragic poet, which begins as such, O thou daughter of Agamemnon, I am come, Electra, to thy rustic court. And all were moved to compassion and felt it to be a cruel deed to abolish and destroy a city which was so famous and produced such poets. And that's the end quote. And Euripides actually had just passed away Hmm. in uh, the end of 400 BC. And so there's there's an example where a dead poet saves a city. Mm-hmm. so like talk about the power of literature and the power of like arts to move us um so that, those are kind of stories that you can like you know if, if you want to make a point i that's what i try to do you know bring so, an example something people can relate to so
0: staying on the example from if you were in a room with high schoolers i mean where where would you go What would be the next you know where would you lead that conversation from that example
2: yeah well i would talk about you know like you know what what is it that that makes us want to um to carry on songs and uh, and and memorize them and and share them and why why can music soften our hearts more than than arguments or rhetoric because you know this is, you know they're singing at a party mm. and everybody's heart just kind of softens you know why why should we put so much effort into uh getting the best uh, into exposing ourselves to the to the best songs the best content the best mm. art the best stories um you know what what can it do for us that might be a way i, I would take yeah. it um yeah mercy versus justice that's another way you could take maybe the, the athenians deserved to, to have their city <laughs> raised for all their crimes yeah. what do you think you know if you if you had kind of gone through the story of the, yeah. the peloponnesian war a lot of people Thought they thought they had it coming, so...
0: No, I think... They, yeah, there's a lot you could go. No, I mean, again, I just, I'm trying to unpack it for our listeners, because I think that's an example. I mean, I've done enough youth ministry where there's that sense of, back to your first example of the music, that, you know, well, what I listen to doesn't really affect me, and it's kind of something I do in my private time. And, you know, here we have these students in our classroom, and we're kind of geeking out of the literature, but then they go home, and their hearts are really moved by their music. So, I mean, unless we really call that out into the light and say, no, what you listen to can move you and it moves you in one of two directions, either for or against what's true, good and beautiful or away from it. So, you know, maybe you need to reflect a bit on where you're spending all your time listening to, I mean, you know, not to make it a moralism out of it, but just, I think surfacing these very real day in the life of a teenager, this is kind of what they're thinking about. And, and again, Plutarch kind of brought that into light as a, as an example of your music and your arts actually really drive your heart. And we better figure that out
2: absolutely and he's you know he's a, a platonist philosopher so he's a follower of of plato who uh, who wrote the republic and and in the republic there's a long conversation about how how if you want to found the ideal state you need to be be very careful about which yeah. stories you tell and what music you let people listen to because right. this is really going to shape especially the souls of the youth so yeah. so plutarch's very kind of attuned to that tradition yeah
0: now again, he was. I mean, again, what's is that not the statement of our times right now? I mean, every every social media feed, music, um, you know, uh, concert that's online. I mean, all these things now are. It's the it's the louder narrative, and we talk a lot about what I call the three o one problem here in Basecamp, which is we kind of control, if you will, the environment from seven forty five to three o'clock for our students, but at three o one, Cyclops, a one eyed screen monster, comes out, and we've got a whole new set of narratives and stories that are coming, and sometimes presented way more winsomely and attractively than the way we're presenting our stories. So, I mean, we're in a battle for stories. I think if that's maybe another theme of this podcast is like, let's make sure this we got better stories. Let's just make sure we're telling them
2: well. And Plutarch will help us do that. So Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's an exhortation to, to get better at telling stories. Right. And, you know, make better music. Yeah. Like, that's what we need to do. Absolutely.
0: Well, let's take another break. And when we come back, one of the questions sure. I, I'd love for you to unpack, because I think, again, so many of us listening are... Um, you know, I think of the, when the technology folks talk about being digital natives and digital immigrants, kind of the younger generation today with technology, they're, they're natives, they grew up with the technology and we older folks are maybe more immigrants, we came at it later in life. I think the same case could be made for the classics. I think there are a lot of us, most of us right now are, you know, kind of classical immigrants we didn't grow up with this we didn't have this education and so what does it look like for those of listening who are adults teachers and maybe even you know for us as we're in our own homes how do can we use plutarch for i mean can this make an interesting dinner conversation if we kind of would it kind of be our cheat sheet if you will as an adult you know read this think about it and then bring this before our, our children at the dinner table maybe maybe not certainly in our classrooms but just Help us, those listening going, oh man, I am, I want this. I need Plutarch. (laughs) Where do I get Plutarch? And we're going to talk, obviously you do a lot of this in your podcast and your work, but maybe help us figure out how to, what our next steps look like. We'll be right back after this break. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. So Keith, if I'm just totally honest, as a parent, um, I got to say, it's not easy being a parent. And I, I wonder if that's why so many, unfortunately, so many people today are just opting out of marriage and even parenting, because it is hard and you don't get to do all the fun stuff you used to get to do. And so what do you say to that? I mean, it's, it is hard, but yeah, that's it, okay.
3: It, you know, it really is hard. I mean, parenting's messy. Uh, and, and And part of the messy is that it's so hard. It's it's interesting, I have parents that come in and work with me and first couple of sessions, a lot of the work is getting a perspective about what our targets really are in parenting and, and some things we need to look at doing differently. But by about the third or fourth session, there, there's a large number that come back in and say, this is hard. And, you know, this takes a lot more time than what we've been doing. This is, you know, our life is full the way it is. and And, you know, it's easier for me to mop the kitchen floor than to teach my eight-year-old to mop the kitchen floor. Yeah. You know, it it, it, it takes twice as long. It creates more of a mess. And, you know, and and what I say to these parents is, you know, it's okay to own that. You know, we need to own that. What God calls us to in raising broken beings to learn to live well in this moment is a struggle, but it's worth it Mm. because where do we want to be? You know, I tell parents all the time, you know, where do we want to be when our child is 18, 19, 20 years old? Do we just want to be glad we're done Or do we want to see them thrive? And the reality is when we get into the self-sacrifice, which means, yes, we put some of our desires on hold. We at times, uh, you know, have to step away from our our interest in technology, or should I say addiction sometimes, Mm -hmm. or we have to decide, gosh, it is going to take extra time. So some of what I was wanting to do, I can't do because I'm teaching this right now. We see the benefit when we see children later in life that are capable. Yeah. So and, and and we're struggling to see that right now with generations that are coming out of college. Yeah.
0: And I think they're probably, again, we always fall on one side of the ditch or the other, probably parents that need to maybe put that hobby on hold for right now. And there are probably others that actually need to go find a hobby because all they're doing is thinking about their kids. So yeah, right. Like,
3: exactly. It's that balance. It's figuring out a balance of how can I begin turning ownership of life over to my child, which is going to take self-sacrifice at times, but then give them space with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: There's, a, there's a great old saying, um, and as my kids are two years before empty nesting here. You know, the the days are long and the years are short and it just seems to be so true. And you know those days, there are times where you're thinking, this is never going to end. It's just so challenging. But
3: lean into it because that's what's forming your kids and ultimately they're going to be gone. Yeah, instead of trying to act like or figure out a way to make it not hard, just accept sometimes it is. Yeah. It's okay though. And sometimes there's
0: a joy in the struggle. Absolutely. I think that's in the Bible. Yes, it's good stuff. Thanks, Keith. (laughs) Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the BaseCamp Live website. So, Alex, as we kind of pull this conversation to a close here in just a moment, there's so much more to talk about, but I hope that those who are listening, if, if we stop the podcast right now, they'd say, okay, well, I definitely need to rethink how I'm using story either in the classroom or in my home, and how do I personally just get access to these these great stories? And obviously, the simple answer is: we go get Plutarch and read it, which is maybe you know go eat the 800 pound elephant um, if you're mm-hmm. not used to reading these kinds of things. But let's start with story because I know you 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 are intentional as a father in finding ways of putting story, and it's not that every story to your kids is Plutarch. It sounds like, but what does that look like in your own home?
2: Yeah, I um, I mean. I started doing this podcast and I think, you know, maybe that was what gave me the idea. One day I was sitting at the dinner table. My daughter is like four. Okay. So I, I, uh, I just say, Hey, you want to hear a story? And, uh, and immediately just like all of her attention right on me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh wow that that's working and so i i just make up some story I, I actually took like an online improv class which is a good thing if you want to practice storytelling so I was like all right here we go I, maybe i i don't know maybe i did the the three little bears i was thinking we needed to like yeah pass on some stories to her and and uh and she was just wrapped with attention mm-hmm. and uh, hanging on every word and i'm at the situation now i'm i regret to say that every single time i sit at the table with my daughter she says dad Tell a story. <laughs> so, I, can't, I really have to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel sometimes, and sometimes she takes over. She starts telling it, you know, making something up herself. Uh-huh. But you know, there, there's, you know, if if you take a storytelling class or read a book on storytelling, there's some kind of fundamental universal elements. I think any teacher should should practice this. I mean, there's there's hardly a thing that you could teach where that wouldn't benefit from some kind of story you know, having, a, a, a problem, a conflict, uh, having vividness in this, some kind of a scene. Um, so, so there's like elements of storytelling that, that I think everybody should kind of benefit from, from doing. And I, and one of the great ways to learn it, um, if you're, if you got the basics down is just imitating great storytellers. That is how the ancients, recommended that you learn to to write well by, by mimesis again it's imitation and um and plutarch you could hardly do better than plutarch for for vividness for drama uh for getting to the heart of characters so yeah. in a yeah. way i feel like i'm kind of rival, trying to rival plutarch by <laughs> telling stories on my own podcast
0: well and again I- I think easier you're describing that, I mean, you know, how do we start ultimately Plutarch and really unpacking the richness of the ancients, which we, we mm-hmm. modern speaking as a parent and as an educator, and we, we need help with that because we didn't necessarily grow up with it. But I'm wondering, you know, just just tell stories. I think I love the dinner table example, and maybe it's as simple as just start with stories of your own family. Like, hey, let me tell you the story as a kid when I grew up and I got lost at the amusement park and, you know, something happened. And, I mean, sometimes we don't even, our kids don't even hardly Absolutely. know us because we don't even frame things in terms of story. Um, and so that's that's a great, uh, you know, word of encouragement to us. So for, for for moving beyond just we know we need to do a better job at telling stories, how do we access Plutarch? Obviously that's what you're setting out to do in your Cost of Glory podcast. I recommend people listen to that. But just where would be the what's the, if you're saying one step in that direction, I want to understand what you're saying, Alex Plutarch sounds like a really interesting guy. Where do I go? I mean, other than buying his book.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I realized I was trying to, I got really into audiobooks a few years ago and started listening to podcasts and like, wow, this is a really interesting, like I didn't, I hadn't done that before. I was always just like, Oh, read a book. That's the only way to really get the information. But, you know, I started listening to, uh, a bunch of books and then I started trying Plutarch out and I, you know, I'm a classicist with a PhD and, uh, and I know this stuff pretty well, but, um, and some of it, I, I, there's, there's, there's audio recordings available of Plutarch, um, usually archaic translations, but even if they're like nice penguin translations, you know, it Plutarch is writing for, it, it actually is meant to be enjoyed orally. all ancient texts pretty much are really meant to be read aloud and enjoyed socially. It's another story, but Plutarch, I mean, he's really assuming if you're going to listen to it, you know, you got to pay a 100% attention to it. Right. But nowadays, when we listen to things, usually we're mowing the lawn or doing the right. dishes or driving exactly. or something. And so we don't have all of our mind on something, but we can assimilate a lot. Um And so I thought, well, Plutarch is great, not really accessible in audio. So what I would love to do is... Just basically retell them in their entirety. Go deep, um, respect about the same kind of scope of length, and just tell the story, offer context where it's, you know, Plutarch sometimes assumes that you know who some care a lot of characters are, where a lot of places are. And I, you know, he goes on digressions that are fun, like, you know, about w- what is a meteor and some mm. kind of kooky stuff. And, and, and it's really fun to read, but sometimes it kind of gets you off, off, off track if you're, you know, if you only have eighty percent or fifty yeah. percent of your mind on the story. So I, I'm trying to bring these and make them just really accessible to people. And um, a lot, you know, a lot of people write in and say that they listen with their kid. Um, I try yeah. to make them family friendly. Um, I wasn't assuming that people would, you know, be listening with kids younger than teenage age, but they do, actually. Um, so that's great. Um, and um, you know, I, I've done five so far. The six should be coming out soon. There's 40 some. So I've, it's a big project. <laughs> but, you know, I'm hoping that that's a way for people to kind of get into yeah. what's at stake. Uh, I've done two, three, uh, three Greeks and two Romans yeah. so far. Well, you I'm gave us an, an early
0: example, maybe just kind of as we wind our time down, kind of, is there a can you give us the trailer for maybe another example of of one of these stories that Plutarch illuminates? I mean, kind of give us the, the quick synopsis. Just kind of again, give us a
2: sense of the of the the access how it can be accessible. Sure. So um well, here's one of my favorites that I've done is uh and one of the guys who really inspired me to to do this podcast is uh, one of the obscure characters in Plutarch's lives. So people have probably heard of Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Mark Antony. But have you heard of Eumenes of Cardia? Uh, no. Doubt it. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's Alexander the Great's personal secretary. And he grows up um, in this Greek city and he kind of gets swept into the campaigns of Alexander, starts off as a pencil pusher. You know, he's he's like the letters guy. He's He's a record keeper. But just through sheer competence and force of character, he works his way up to become um, a commander of cavalry. And he ends up, um, Alexander dies young, tragically, and there's kind of a mess after he dies because he's conquered this huge swath. He's conquered the Persian Empire, age 30. And then he dies, age 33. And uh, and his generals have this big war, his, his six... Um, his lieutenants kind of like, take; they can't agree who should rule the empire. And so there's this kind of tragic set of wars. And Eumenes gets caught up in this. But he's he's basically one of the contenders for defending the honor of the family of Alexander. And um, there's a great story where he's sieged in this hilltop fort. It's about the size of a pro soccer field. And mm-hmm. he's got 600 men in there and their horses. And they have food and water, but it's, they just have like oatmeal. That's like all they have for like a year. And they're they're surrounded by another general of Alexander's, Antigonus, the one-eyed. And he um, he invites Eumenes out for a parley. At some point, he's like, "Look, Eumenes, we're old friends. Surrender. Come on. I'll I'll be nice to you. I've got you surrounded. You've only got 600 men left. You've got no chance. And Eumenes." says, yes, friend, well, maybe we maybe we can come to a peace agreement. Um, I want all of my former privileges back. I want my province back. I want to basically rule as the governor of one of the realms and all of my men to pre- pre- retain all their honor and possessions. And Antigonus, I mean, this is a really, like, mm-hmm. really bold request. I mean, he's got, you know, 600 men up on the top of the hill and nothing else. And, you know, he's not in a position to make demands. And Antigonus is like, <laughs> you may <met> his- <laughs> Shouldn't you be addressing me as a superior? Mm-hmm. And he uh, says, "Well, as long as I have my sword, I consider no man my superior." <laughs> and he walks back up into his up into his fort, and he he waits there for another year. So, I mean, this is an example of like, and he lives to to fight another day, and like he's several more years in the war. But that's like an example of a, a great story. But it's it's kind of about courage, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, can you use that? Everybody else around you is seeing you've got no chance, but you know you got a shot. Yeah. You're gonna hold out, yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna say no to all the doubters and, and hold forth. Yeah. Um. So I think that's a great story that you know, um, you could use to illustrate a virtue. There's a, there's another example where he's um, same guy Eumenes, his former secretary, this pencil pusher, and he's leading a coalition of a bunch of like super egomaniac generals who are, you know, don't, who all think that they're better than him. They all think that they're better than everybody else, but he's actually the best general. So he's actually, you know, manages to to command the the army. It's like 20,000 men. And, but at some point he gets word, he kind of gets the sense. We don't know how, but he, he realizes they want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. And so what he does is he says, uh, he goes to each of them privately and he says, ah, you know, I, I'm kind of short on cash. Can, can I borrow some money? And he borrows money from each of them, large sums of money independently. And, um and you know, basically puts himself in their debt. And then by the time they all realize that he's, um what he's done, he's borrowed money from all of them. They, they thought that it was a one-off each of them, but he's borrowed money from all of them and he's gone and spent it all. Within a matter of days, he's given it to all of his soldiers and, you know, bought this and that. They all realize if we kill this guy, we're never going to get our money back. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) So sometimes it's the debtor that that controls the creditor. So that, you know, that would be an example of the old fashioned Greek wisdom, which for them was also just like cleverness. You know, the Sophia of of Odysseus, you know, wily, crafty people. So like, you know, how can you how can you master a situation with wisdom? Um, so I think that that's the kind of stuff that you can get out of these stories, but I think anybody can kind yeah, of no, get re- into, yeah,
0: no, they, I mean, again, as you're, as you're telling the story, um, it, it's like your daughter, you describe your daughter. I mean, you, you just sit up and start paying more attention. It's just naturally more interesting. And so, uh, those are great. Well, I think, yeah, the, you've made the point well, and, and I, hopefully those listening will, if you're educating the classroom, kind of rethink where to story fit in and certainly lean on Plutarch as sort of a. A guide to help unpack these great stories, and if you're a parent and you've never had this kind of education before, I'd, I certainly, again, listening to your podcast, Alex, would be a, a good way to continue what we're hearing right here. And and uh, if you're if you're so bold as to go get Plutarch yourself and start reading, um, it's certainly n- not inaccessible to people if you're willing to take the time. Yeah, you know, yeah. The,
2: the, in the early colonies, they did it, you know, and and uh, they had yeah. reference works. They would look up a name here or there, but sure. you can make your way through it if you make the time. It's, yeah, it's not like a you need to be an expert on, on Plutarch. Um, yeah. But hopefully, you know, I, I make the the lives accessible for people who are, you know, don't that. have time to sit down and read and, you know, <clears throat> right. they're mowing the lawn a lot or whatever. Yeah.
0: Well, and again, back to the basic idea, we're in a, in a culture of the superficial people are hungry for substance They're hungry for depth. And, and here is this richness of how to live life. Well, that's uh, captured in these stories that are timeless. So thank you so much for, helping us rediscover or discover for the first time Plutarch and the great work he's done. And I appreciate the great work you're doing in bringing this alive.
2: Yeah, thanks, Davies. I, I mean, the, the classical education movement is is the future. And I think that we're, we're going great places. And uh, you know, there's this incredible treasure trove we have. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I love what you're doing. And I, I love seeing this movement grow. Well,
0: thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening. And thanks for being a part of the show today. We look forward to having you on again.
4: Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davey's daughter, Hannah here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at There we'll also answer all your questions and more, and any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.